噔噔，噔噔噔噔噔噔噔噔，噔噔噔噔噔噔噔噔。It's a whole new campaign. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Comparing Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as in all the previous episodes in the other campaigns, it's Miguel. That's me. Cody M, co-host, and also bringing a new campaign. I got a new campaign. You know, it's um, a clean slate for both of us. Yeah, it's things have aligned, and we are both. Uh, it's not the same number of campaign. This is my second campaign that I'm starting to talk about, and McGill is talking about his fourth campaign on the show. This being the show where we talk about our past campaigns and uh, go through them session by session, talk about what happened, interesting moments and whatnot, and then uh, afterwards we hit the tavern, the the non-Euclidean tavern, it's got too many quarters, it's tavern time, and that's where we talk about uh, just weird stuff about role-playing games that we found. Interesting Other content. assorted topics. So... If you're new to this new show, but it's a new season and you don't want to listen to the old one, I just filled you in. Bing it his button. Bow. Although Yeah, this is a pretty good place for new new listeners to jump in. Although my first campaign is like precedent to this one. So if you do want to hear the prequel as it were, maybe you're doing it Star Wars style and and you know then uh, maybe you like Star Wars, and then you've got that reason to go back to the early episodes. But whatever the case, both of us have new uh, campaigns. It is uh, the 19th of January, and it is episode 46. We are 19th no of longer... January, 2021. We should probably note the year now that we've been oh, doing yeah, this yeah. for I, more I than never, a year. I forgot. I, I didn't even think about it, but... Uh, yeah, and it's episode 46, which is funny because or it's just it's just weird for me to say because previously I'd been saying what session it was. And we were going from 0, but now we're jumping from what session it was to what episode it was because at this point we're not tracking what session it was in my campaign anymore. It was only up until that last one. So, um episode 46 I don't, you know, normally I say what operation it is. I don't really have an operation to just hit you with right away. But boy, does this do new I have campaign not have you. operations the same way the previous one did? It does, actually. But it just like, I feel like it. this is like session zero and the start of that operation. Like, I don't think we're going to finish that operation. So it doesn't seem correct to do it that way. Um, meanwhile, you've got a, a, uh, an Eberron. Yeah. I almost said a post-apocalypse and that'd be funny because that's what you just did. No, it's the Eberron, uh, touring band campaign, I believe is your, is your pitch. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all the players started at level two and they had to take their first level as a bard so that they all have a background in music. And then I let them multi-class into whatever they wanted. 
And uh, I am introducing my second campaign, the second 5e campaign that I ever ran, because the last one, Empox Finest, was my first. It basically coincided with the release of 5e and me getting into it. Uh, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, if you're not familiar. Uh, You'll be very familiar if you're not very soon. Um, I should note that uh, while the previous campaigns I talked about were all done using the D20 modern system, just because none of them were in the traditional fantasy setting, this one is in fact a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, and I used D&D 3.5, edition 3.5, to run this one. Okay, now that's interesting because one thing I was thinking was like I'll uh take a leveling bard. That's not necessary. You could just put it in your background. Just get have them all do musical instruments. But that's a 5th edition thing. That's like whatever. So so I'm I'm getting out of, I'd be stepping out of my depths if I was trying to make that correction for you. Um but point being, my second 5th edition campaign hot off the heels of my first one like it it was maybe a week or two after that i started this campaign and it is called al's aces i mentioned in the past campaign how uh so it was about mpox finest it was about a team of trans-dimensional super spies who are fighting uh uh an uh like a necro supremacist uh transdimensional faction that was spreading from world to world and um that organization the empoc was uh started by a figure named odium but over the course of that first campaign odium went missing it there wasn't a lot of it wasn't talked about a lot but it, like it just sort of happened and things kept going but as of this campaign, the actual leader of the MPOC is nobody like it's it's unclear where he is. And so Al's Aces refers to the fact that this team is run by the goblin Al Samasath or Al, who has uh, stepped up to take the reins in Odium's absence. Big shoes to fill for a small goblin. Um, so should I jump into mine first or should you do your first? I'm, I'm, I feel like I've got a lot. You have a lot? I feel like I have a lot. I think maybe you should, uh, take the reins first, especially because I have to introduce a whole new setting because my campaign is set in Eberron, uh, whereas yours, yours is continuing in Drail, correct? That is correct. The, uh, very setting that we have a map of on our WordPress on the first post, uh, can check out. Also, I think that I've been saying that wrong. I think it's actually our second post because I think there's a little introduction post first. But whatever the case, you go back to the Scroll beginning. Scroll to a, the bottom. Yeah, go go to the beginning, the and there'll be a big old map of uh, my setting or the material plane aspect of my setting. Because as I mentioned, mine is kind of a plane hopping one, but most of the action takes place in the world of Drail, which is a, a material world which has been uh which has come under threat from a nightside eclipse incursion the nightside eclipse being the uh undead faction i'm not sure if i mentioned that it's a anyway. material world filled with material girls yeah i was i was kind of thinking that um so alzaces it takes place 
not long after Mpox's finest. Uh, you know, I've I've mentioned basically the setup is that Al Samasath, the Goblin, is starting this team uh, basically as a follow up to Mpox's finest, but he's kind of out of his depth because he's he's not the guy who came up with this, or he's he's not the original guy. So he's just trying to fill in for the leader Odium, the mysterious figure who's mysteriously gone missing now. And so we have three characters. We have uh, a drow rogue named Chessie Dildira. Uh, she uh, was played by a friend of mine who actually um, I had played in, like I had played in games run by him of fifth edition and played alongside him as a player in games of fourth uh, edition and fifth edition. So, uh, he was a friend of mine, very experienced with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and for that reason, I think what he ends up building with this character, Chessie Dildira is like a super powerhouse character. Um, like one of arguably one of the best builds for a character I've ever seen, but we'll get to that. She starts off as just a drow rogue and, um, she is basically a transfer from her uh, drow house, House Dildira, to the service of the Mpok. But uh, Chessie is a very comical character. She has a very low wisdom. Um, she's very, like, uh, she kind of talks like this. And uh, she she often, like, goes on a limb on weird ideas she's had. And so often uh, she has theories about what's going on, and uh, she's just wrong in the end. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> she's, so she's kind of like a valley girl? Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Um, maybe I don't know enough about that stereotype to, like, apply it to her. But um, I always thought of her. She's, she very much feels like an anime character to me. Like, she feels like one of those... Uh, loud, confident uh, anime heroines that like, and, and the player was like a big anime fan, so I I may be like reading some of that into that. Nice, <laughs> but um, yeah. The the funny and and another comical aspect of her character is that there's this idea that like she was an agent transfer to the Empok from the Drow, who who normally like have minimal dealings with the surface, but. Um, in fact, the reason she was transferred to the Mpok was because her family was, uh, annoyed by her and sick of dealing with her. Basically, <laughs> um, she has a number of like, she has one sister who's kind of like a, a badass, like, um, like, uh, geez, I'm trying to remember some, some sort of badass, like, uh, you know, hero adventurer, uh, like kick ass sword sword swordsman i don't know um and then she has another who's almost more like a, a mad scientist kind of villain who sort of like keeps is like very proud and keeps to her lair and like works on foul experiments and stuff and is just like jesse get out of here get out of my lab that sort of thing so like she comes from this background of like you know she she's kind of the black sheep in her more traditional uh drow family and um so that that's basically how she starts out she joins that way then um my brother rejoined the game 
Uh, he's coming back for the second campaign. He previously played Valfar on Draglin Guy, the black metal dragonborn uh, bard, who is now like a major NPC because he hit level 20 and then kind of retired in the previous adventure. And this play takes place like maybe half a year after that, like um, three months to six months after the previous campaign, if you're looking for like a timeline. And so for this campaign, my brother rolled up the character uh, Ara Stormblast Kendor or Stormblast. Uh, this is so Valfarine Draglin guy was a reference to Valfarine Windier, which is a whole thing with like the metal band Windier had a, an album called uh Arntor Ein Windir, which means like Arntor O Warrior, and it's like a concept album about this Viking. But it's just like a good black metal album. And my but then one of the members of the band was named Valfar, and he uh died tragically. Uh I think he like was traveling in Norway and got caught in a blizzard and and died of hypothermia, I believe was the case with him. And so then they did a tribute album to that guy called Valfar Einwindir. And then my brother made this dragonborn named Valfar Eindraglin guy. So it's all just like, it's all sprawling out. It of all comes back to ongoing. metal. Yeah, exactly. Similarly- and you know what? You know what? Preview of uh, of my campaign. My campaign also has some metal in it this time. I was hoping so. Now, um, the initial name of Ara Kendor, I'm pretty sure actually came to my brother from watching a whole bunch of Eric Andre on LSD. Um, but uh, the name Ara, like... So he is a Goliath. Uh, he was a Goliath storm cleric and Goliaths tend to have like a clan name that is like sort of their, their true name. Like, so there's Arakendor is like his name, but the, the name that he like really goes by is Stormblast and Stormblast, uh, which is Stormblast, but with the little O, uh, accent over the A, that is a reference to I believe uh, either Dimu Borgir's one of their earlier albums or yeah I I think it was yeah Dimu Borgir's second uh, album was called uh, Stormblows Dimu Borgir being a major black metal band and uh, and they've also re-released that album since but basically again we have a character that is like rooted in metal um. But Eric Kendor, uh, uh, Ara Stormblast Kendor, was very much like he's he's a real change of pace from Valfar Eindraglin guy, mainly because of his like critical personality trait was um, uh, nothing could shake like he had this unshakably positive attitude, and so he was like he was always like optimistic and in good spirits, and. Valfar was very much like he had a tragic backstory where he was raised by goblins who died in a natural disaster. And like, um, 
you know, I, I, my, my brother's other character since also has like very tragic uh, origin stories. And so that has caused me to like really appreciate Ara Kendor being kind of like a lighter, like a, a, a happy Goliath. Um, Goliaths being these uh, sort of like um, big, like a, a big humanoid race that comes from the mountains and has sort of like um, at the joints and stuff, they have like outcroppings of rock sometimes coming out of their uh, skin and whatnot. Um, and their abilities are generally about things like resisting damage and like being, you know, unshakable, that sort of thing. Uh, they're, they're big and tough, certainly. And, um, it also referring to the Drail map, they would come from the, uh, sort of the top of the mountains where, uh, Arten is located. So like they're, they're sort of at where like the mountains meet the highlands, basically. Um, so Ara was a storm cleric or a tempest cleric. And initially we were a bit unclear on... I think we we had not really solidified or like we weren't fully committed to what his deity was. Um, and what we started out with was the concept that he worshipped the Greek uh, mythological figure Alala, which is basically like a personification of the war cry, um, with the idea being that that was sort of where he got like his thunder power and everything. That was like he had the power of like sound on his side. So he was almost like a sonic based uh, storm cleric. But um, much like Chessy, he's a character that will like develop over time. Uh, he also had a few like in terms of like how he got involved with the Empok, He had... Um, he had a, a very interesting sort of octagonal grid or sigil tattoo, um, that covered his face that was mysterious in origin and meaning. Um, <clears throat> but again, would like the meaning of that would be revealed over time. Uh, the other thing is that he joined the Empok because he had, for a long time carried a coin which had a mysterious symbol on it that he didn't understand and uh that symbol turned out to be the symbol of the empok and so he sort of followed that um coin that he had into the empok and took that as sort of like divine guidance that this was where he was headed for he did cool of the empok finally we have the Wood Elf uh, Ranger, Nestlee Goodberry, who is the niece of Mia Lee Goodberry, the uh, elven rogue from the previous campaign. So an, an actual member of Empox Finest. And uh, Mia Lee in Empox Finest uh, basically cut a deal with the devil, archdevil Mephisto, uh, Lord of the Eighth Layer of Hell, to secure her people, her the elves of her homeworld, Thress. So she actually comes from a different plane, a different material plane. Um, she, her people were traditionally oppressed by humans and other races, and so she cut a deal with the devil Mephisto uh, to empower her people with hellfire, and basically she turned things over so that now 
the elves are like the tyrannical rulers of her plane and they are like unopposed and they rule this kind of like industrial it's like half fantasy world half industrial hellscape because of the influence of hellfire and the fact that they've been able to like advance their technology through that so all of this that Mealy has done in her home plane has led to her being like she is the queen spy master of the world of Thress, which is ruled by like hellfire powered elves who sort of like uh, dominate every all, the whole world there. And um, so Nestle is Mealy's niece and she has very much like she wasn't born into this world, but she grew up in it such that. Like she has grown up uh, of noble birth rather than being like oppressed. Like Mealy was a folk hero because she was a rebel in among her elven people. And now Nestle has actually grown up more or less in the lap of luxury because her people are just like the high authorities of the world now. Um, so she it basically joins the Empire to like follow in her aunt's footsteps um, to gain the sort of like supreme abilities and power that her aunt apparently gained in her time as an Empire agent. And uh, yeah, was uh, was a ranger. So sort of like a mix of uh, magic abilities and, um, you know, very much a specialization in ranged combat uh, sort of. Um, complemented by magical abilities or, or uh, you know, expanded by magical abilities. And um, though I will say I am not an expert on this, but I have always known Ranger to be one of the more contentious classes in 5th edition in terms of its initial design. I know that it's had a lot of like alternative designs or redesigns since, and I'm... Unfortunately, I can't speak too much on how much uh, Nestle interacted with those different systems. I generally left it to the players to be like, you guys figure out which like class you're playing. And I think that that was like, like I mentioned, the player who played Chessie was very experienced with Dungeons and Dragons. And so he was sort of able to advise on what the best options for Nestle would be. So I'm not like, I know that traditionally she would have maybe certain disadvantages from playing the Ranger subclass because of certain design issues. But um, I don't know how many of those design issues she like took alternative options for basically, which at this point in uh fifth edition design, I, I know I was talking to you about this recently, McGill, but like, more and more uh the core rules have like moved towards like customization options and things where you just like make the character that you want to be as opposed to you know following a set restriction and so i think like that you know it's it's not out of the spirit of the game that um to take this approach is what i'm saying yeah that makes sense so we have these three characters and the reason I was a bit like uh, back and forth on the length of time between the previous campaign and this one is because uh, like they basically join the MPOC th or they're put in this team three months after the events of the previous campaign. But then um, 
And we can consider like the last campaign's epilogue as happening over that three months. But then at the start of this campaign, I did do, it wasn't a whole session, but it was effectively a session zero where the idea was that um, this was when like the team was going through, Al's Aces were going through their initial MPOC training. So that covers firearms. The other thing is that, so I've talked a lot about how the MPOC um, generally gets around by use of like portals and they have sort of like a teleporter room where they have a, a goblin named Greasel who is like the Scotty and runs it. And that is like they have their bases have teleporter rooms where they can send them out to wherever from. But when it comes to like exfiltration, in order to exfiltrate by way of teleportation, the MPOC has a system where they have like um, these sort of like rune codes where you can sort of like lay down a temporary teleportation circle by throwing down these uh depending on your location throwing down like rune stones in a specific sequence and these are like encoded and so this was another part of like their training that they had to undergo similar to like you know world war ii like spy or, or oss like code training um again like that aspect of the mpoc i have always considered to be very inspired by that sort of like uh world war ii um you know re uh intelligence operations uh background um i want to play the mpoc video game by the way yeah why, well, i mean why like is, i feel like all that? that stuff is like the the tutorial level <laughs> where you have to learn you know uh al samasath brings you into room and goes like here are the rune stones you're going to learn how to decode the rune stones then press F to decode or something. It's like, all right, now go to that side of the room. We've simulated that that side of the room is a different continent. All right, now that'll need a different sequence. Do you know what the runes will be? Uh, you've got three minutes. Um, and then but, you press um, A or D to tune into the right frequency. And when you have it, you yeah, press exactly. F. <laughs> oh, that means I got it right. Um, so uh, also we we like played out the part where they were doing firearms training just to see who like initially did really well. And what was funny was that uh, Nestle, the ranger who should have done phenomenally, um, like didn't do well on her firearms role. And so she was kind of like, I think there's something wrong with this weapon. And so the sort of the joke was like she's more used to using bows or something like like firearms are kind of like, oh, I don't I don't like this. Um, but meanwhile, you know, everybody's, uh, doing this firearms training and then in training with them is a goblin by the name of Abu. Uh, but they also had the chance to roll insight to realize that Abu or Abu, um, was not actually a trainee. He was a plant to monitor their progress during training, um, so that was another little thing I threw in during that sort of like session zero. The other thing I introduced, and this is kind of funny because it doesn't um, end up lasting. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I also introduced a rule from uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide that I really like, um, particularly for MPOC campaigns. And I think I mentioned it before on the show, but it's the rule uh, Healer's Kit Dependency. So typically you 
when you take a short rest, you can roll hit die, and then you heal. But healer's kit dependency basically says you can only do that if you have, like, a med kit, like a enough medical supplies to actually patch yourself up at that point. And sure. so healer's kits are cheap. Uh, each one you get is like, it's like five gold for a healer's kit. And then everyone you get has 10 charges and all healer's kit dependency is, is like, if you want to heal on a short rest, you have to use one of those charges. Um, but I like it for the MPOC in terms of like, just the flavoring of like if you're out if you're out on some mission and you're doing like and you end up out in the field long enough to do short rests you should actually have like a med kit on you that you're using to like patch up at those points um the i mentioned sort of that like this didn't end up applying for all that long one of the major issues with this that i've had with some of the sessions I've run and the campaigns that I've run, depending on like how I've run them is that there's a tendency to like, you know, the op ends like, like <clears throat> there's a tendency to just not take short rest during an op basically, because you know, you do the operation and then you go back to base. And it's like, that's where we heal. So it ended up not coming up that much. It, it basically only comes up in sort of like long-term like, expedition missions um but but yeah so it's sort of a mixed bag i like the rule a lot but um it really depends on how you're running the campaign is basically my take on it so um then basically after so then we sort of like jump ahead in time after having that what is basically three months of training covered in sort of like that montage that we just did. And then um, we start Act 1, which is the Gates of Slumber. Now, um, this, this campaign, previous campaign, I talked a lot about I was, you know, working from scratch. I wasn't familiar with 5th edition, I had the player's handbook. The Dungeon Master's Guide came out like midway through that campaign. And so there was a lot of just sort of like figuring things out for myself. But this campaign is where I started to harvest a lot of stuff from existing 5th edition modules, particularly things from like the Adventurers League. And so as a result... I think that for this campaign, I'm just generally going to have a lot more content to talk about because just like getting into the first operation of the Gates of Slumber, I not only have my own operation and how I ran it to talk about, but I also have all the content that I harvested to talk about, um, which in fairness, like your previous campaigns with um, Minds of Metal and Wheels have had a a similar thing where you've used, you've talked about dungeons that you've used and then like how you've translated them. And that's so, going to happen in uh, this Eberron campaign as well. In fact, uh, there are going to be a couple of adventures that I used that I've already talked about in the tavern. Right. In previous episodes. Cool. Awesome. So, um, ooh, is there going to be an elf in the house? There might be. All right, that sounds like there will be, but anyway. 
Uh, Act one, the gates of slumber. Uh, we start off, basically, the agents are deployed to Goblin Town. Uh, kind of funny, like, it's actually, it's, it's almost very out of character that in the first campaign, they didn't get to Goblin Town until, like, the the third last act, I think. This one is a much more traditional Tom Lando campaign in that you start off in Goblin Town. You're deployed to Goblin Town, and uh, where they have, because of the efforts of the Mpox Finest, which at this point, you know, just go back and listen to it if you want to learn about it. But basically, because of their efforts, there is an inn in Goblin Town called the Barking Dog Inn. And that inn is also like it's a front for an Mpox base. It is like that is simultaneously the Mpox HQ in Goblin Town. And it's also like an inn for travelers passing in and out of, of the city of Goblin Town. So the uh, agents are deployed to this inn uh, where they're going to be working from for, I think, the probably the entirety of the act. I'm not sure about that, but but certainly they start off and it's generally like that's their like home base. It's like the framing device. Um, and I'm just now realizing like that's not true what I just said about for the rest of the act. So forget that. It's just like it is a framing device certainly for the first operation. And this is why I don't really have like this episode is not really the episode for this operation is because what I realized going back to my notes is that the adventure I used for this operation is like a series of five like mini adventures that are all interconnected. And in the actual like source material from the Adventurers League, uh, which is an adventure called Defiance in Flan, it's the first uh it's the first episode or, or like the first adventure in the first adventurers league season and flan uh for those who don't know is it's a set it's a city in forgotten realms on the moon sea which is like generally kind of an open setting for uh people to make their own content in in for like conventions and stuff in the adventurers league but uh, also, the setting of the Moon Sea, in particular the cities like Flan, uh, are best known from the Pool of Radiance series, which is a video game series as old as I am, beginning, I believe, in 1989 with uh, Pool of Radiance. Also, Pool of Radiance, uh, there was like a there was a new Pool of Radiance game in 2001. But point being, Adventures League has always kind of gone back and drawn on stuff that they can like make clever little nods to old Dungeons and Dragons video games that only people who played really old video games will like understand. Um, but fun fact, the guy who played Chessy had recently played through all the old uh, D&D games on good old games from the <laughs> uh, Forgotten Realms archive. So... Uh, he actually understood uh, references that I made when I talked about the adventures that I was using. Though, hey, again, that's this is nice. All kind of We've like, talked in the past about, like, as DMs, we slip those little references in for our own amusement. But it's kind of cool that one of your players actually got them. Yeah, well, and and it's it's more tricky than that because, like, really, the references weren't so much in my game because my game had been fully reskinned. But occasionally I would talk to him 
outside the game and be like, yeah, this is based on like something from Pool of Radiance. And he's like, oh, I actually played that. And so he would he knew Flan and things like that. Flan is the city in, uh, I believe, the first Pool of Radiance game. And you're making me want Flan. Yeah, well, it's spelled uh, P-H-L-A-N. But um, so the first season of uh, the Adventures League uh, for fifth edition, um, which was based around the Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat adventures and were the season was called Tyranny of Dragons. It was generally about generally the bad guys were the dragon cults and they were operating in and around Flan. And so that was like the hub for that season. And um, so for this first operation, uh, you have a series of adventures that uh five midi adventures that the characters do while they are staying at an inn uh called madame friona's tea kettle uh which is like a popular establishment in flan flan probably a reference not sure about that um and so yeah basically the idea is that like between every little mini adventure, they come back to the inn, recuperate, and then they like, you know, the next day they go on the next adventure or whatever. You can have varying levels of space between them. Like it's a very, it's a very modular, versatile kind of um, adventure. Uh, instead of Madame Friona's tea kettle, I had the Barking Dog Inn, which was run by a human uh, hostess by the name of Abigail, who was basically sort of like the recurring NPC, uh, not like a quest giver or anything, but just like who their their contact, you know, the person who was running the place. I really like to believe that it's part of the same chain of inns as the Howling Wolf. Well, uh, there is a Howling Wolf in uh, Drail, and uh, I don't I don't know if characters end up there at some point. same owner well i don't know i i think abigail is like i think also abigail is kind of like running this place on behalf of the empok as well like so because i definitely i have like a little doodle of her in my notebook here that like it shows that she has uh or like there's a little diagram that's like hidden on in her boot is like a Aphrodite 44 revolver which is like the heavy revolver that the Empok puts out and then also she's listed as having like Kevlar armor under her uh you know regular hostess clothes um for extra protection Kevlar also just to remind being basically the benefits of mage armor it's one step above studded leather it's 13 plus your dexterity and it's free for mpoc agents once you're an mpoc agent they just they'll give you the kevlar armor uh guns and stuff they're less you know that's dangerous to just hand out so you gotta earn your guns um so the first operation uh which covers the whole of defiance in flan was operation conqueror and so because this is like five mini adventures, I like we're already about 40 minutes into the podcast. I don't want to cover. I think I'm going to cover one of these mini adventures. I'm not going to cover anywhere near all five in one. Also, particularly because as it was played, I think it was generally one session per adventure. Um I may be wrong about that, and I think there's at least one, like, exception. 
where there's one adventure that's like quite, quite short. I think it takes place like in the inn. And so there wasn't like a lot of reason to have a gap between that and the last one. But uh, with that said, like, while I have this listed as one adventure or, or one operation, it's really five mini adventures. And I'm probably going to cover it like that. The first operation begins. The players are enjoying dinner with Abigail uh, and their boss, Al Samasath, arrives with a job. Um, basically, the job is that there are these there are some locals that are selling this mysterious can of like crimson fluid, which uh, I remember prompted uh, Chessie to ask, is it blood? Um, <laughs> which Al Samasath was kind of cagey about. He, it wasn't, I don't think it was a solid no. It might have been, but it, I don't think it was. I think he was kind of like, it, this is, they're trying to sell some kind of like unnamed or unspecified, like weird crimson fluid, uh, a can of it. And basically, the players are supposed to go like, I have pose as buyers written uh, and like, um, they, they, I mean, they were buying it, really. So, well, right, right. Here's the issue is that they pose as buyers. And so also just to, like, talk about the adventure this is based on, uh, it's a similar setup. Uh, there's a member of the Harpers, which is sort of like the, the, like the Freedom Society in, uh, like, the, the chaotic good faction in uh, Forgotten Realms. Adventurers League is typically divided into five major factions so like players can be from either the zentarim which is like the mafia uh like weird wizard mafia um the emerald enclave which is like the druid kind of nature faction uh the lord's alliance um the order of the gauntlet so lord's alliance being sort of like civilization and uh you know peace and the order of the gauntlet being like justice and whatnot so you have these different five factions that the players can be from and sometimes these adventures have like little submissions that are specific to factions and stuff in my games all of these factions are just the empok all of the submissions apply to everybody it's just like the submissions are in the missions basically one thing is like in these adventures, I I use everything. I use every part of the animal, you know? Um, I don't... Uh, there, there's also, like, I'll, I, I'm, I may talk about this in the tavern, but Adventurers League has a lot of, like, formatting stuff. They have systems for, like, if your party is below the expected target for level or if they are above the, the like, expected, like, sort of challenge level... Um, different alterations you can make to the uh to to the adventures i generally like i don't know i i would often scale the difficulty up all the way regardless and just just because it would mean there was like the most stuff going on um and, and they gave me the most to sort of play around with um so and, and then i would balance it you know myself i already you know, giving them an edge with like Kevlar armor and guns and whatnot. So it's not exactly going to follow the Adventurers League challenge rating either. Um, 
So in the Adventurers League example, in Defiance and Flan, there are some individuals offering to sell a dragon egg. Um, in reality, the egg is a fake, but the players are asked by the Harpers to pose as buyers um, with a by trading with a bag of fake diamonds they are provided with. And one of their objectives is to pin a like magical tracking marker on one of the dealers so that they can track them and figure out what's going on. Um, it's not clear to the players that the dragon egg is a fake in the original adventure. And so in my version, it's just, they're looking for this mysterious, they, they're trying to buy this, mysterious can of crimson fluid and instead of a bag of fake diamonds to buy it with they're given a pay bag which contained a used med kit 10 gold pieces and a bunch of old meat um the one thing i like about the original adventure is that in posing as the buyer there is a setup thing i'm just gonna read this um <clears throat> Inevitably, the seller notices something is amiss, namely a single aspect of the character posing of the, as the as the merchant that is that looks wrong. Um, it might be the seller expected someone shorter or taller. She might have expected the merchant to have a molar birthmark, or perhaps she expected the merchant to have a facial tick or strange speech pattern. Whatever you choose, make it something fun or interesting for the characters to have to role play or think of an excuse for. And then uh, it basically comes down to two skill checks. There's a DC 10 deception to convince them that you are who you say you are. And then there's a DC 10 sleight of hand to get the tracking pin on the dealer. Um, in my version, sort of the obvious thing was like when they meet the the seller, they're like, they were expecting a goblin. <laughs> you would be in Goblin Town. It's it's the trail. There's so many campaign. goblins. Exactly. It's like, hey, how come the goblin's not buying this? But whatever the case. Um, so they are told to go meet these people who are selling this mysterious can of crimson fluid, uh, make a trade-off with a fake pay bag. And uh, the deal is going down in sort of the husk of a coastal sh shipwreck near Goblin Town, since Goblin Town is right on the uh, western coast of Drail. Um, in the uh, in the original adventure, the setup is like these people are selling this fake dragon egg, and then members of the local thieves guild attack like attack during the deal things go wrong and like there's generally like there's different factions in my version in this it was just always a trap like like they get to the deal and it's not that like a bunch of other guys show up and start a fight it's that like there are basically like you imagine they're sort of uh, doing the deal in the lower deck that's sort of like beached on the in the shipwreck, but then on the upper deck, sort of hidden and watching through the hatch, is like two guys who are watching, waiting to like spring the ambush, basically. And then you've got other guys like hidden out nearby. So basically, you have um, you have uh, a goblin seller and th he's got three goblin guards with him but then up on the upper deck like hidden out 
is uh, a bandit and a thug. And then there is also an orc thug and two more bandits uh, sort of hidden out nearby waiting for like the commotion to break out to sort of close in. And all of this was like, this is basically like a more intense version of all the things that can happen in the original adventure, um, mainly because like in this version, the players have like guns and stuff like there's there's quite a few things they can do. Um, But uh, there was also um the so there was a they could have detected the people in the upper part of the ship with a dc20 perception um the bandits actually had light revolvers so there was that sort of like added element um and then in the original adventure the fake dragon egg is secretly like a uh, a flash bomb so that if the if something goes wrong the sellers can smash it on the ground and basically blind the players and then like make their escape uh in this version i equipped the sellers with a flashbang to like spring this ambush basically um so there was the initial sort of handoff where the players try to pin the tracker on them and they get the can. And there was also a, uh, real, like a DC 20 arcana check they could have done to try and identify like that. The can was basically, it basically was like effectively a can of blood. It like was not magical <laughs> or special in any way. Um, just delicious, but, uh, whatever the case, um, like whether they figured that out or not, once that handoff goes down, then they get flashbanged. Guys move in from like above and outside and, uh, you know, hell breaks loose. Um, but uh, the players managed to hold their own. They pinned the guy. They got the can. Uh, I, they managed to fight their way out. I don't know if they managed to take out everyone, but they might have. Um, and uh, yeah, they got back to... Uh, the inn, they hand off the can to Al, who basically confirms that, like, okay, this isn't what I was worried it was. It Nothing to worry about, but, like, good job. And similarly, that's how, like, the adventure ends, is, like, even if the egg is brought back intact, it's like, well, we'll figure out who those sellers were through the pin, but it looks like, you know... um this is clearly a fake dragon egg, so don't worry about that. But it is just like a hint that there's like dragon cult stuff going on in the area. And um, yeah, that uh, I think is where I'm going to leave off because uh, then, you know, that happens. It starts with them at dinner with the hostess. So then they do that in the they, in the nighttime. They come back, they're resting. And then the next adventure happens uh, after breakfast with the hostess abigail so kicking off a new campaign al's aces in goblin town doing jobs with a few meals yep meals between uh meals between things and it's funny i don't i think because it was like the first one and i didn't realize this would come in handy like i just have in the notes dinner with abigail but the later parts I have lo- like listed what was specifically served. So like clearly I started adding that to my notes as I realized it would, it's something the players would ask about. <laughs> cool. It's exciting to, to be kicking off a new one. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a lot. It's a lot. Say that. Should we move on to Eberron? Yeah, unless you've got any comments or questions on mine so far. Uh did this this canned blood beverage is it in like a like a pop top can, like a soda pop or a beer? I was thinking more like a like a tin can, like a ah. like a like a can of soup, but uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, had can of crimson, can of crimson fluid. Cool. That's a good like. It, this oh, this I, will make sense. This will make a lot more sense as the campaign goes on. By the way, I do there's have a, a there's a thing that Al thought that that fluid might be that he confirms at the end that it's not, but like this is a major thing that will unfold through the campaign. So if it I did have a question. Sense, did these did these players all start at level one? Yes, they did. Okay. But with access to pretty impressive gear. Cool. Well, we've already gone a bit long, so I'm just going to do sort of the prologue, the session zero for Eberron. Sure thing. Do you know much about Eberron? Uh, lightning rails, the Mornlands, uh, Warforged. There was a big war, but it's over now. Yeah, those are sort of the basics of it. Steampunk? Um, Airships? yeah, it's kind of it's got some steampunk to it, but it's all it's like magic punk, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some technology like trains and airships and warforged, and it's all powered by magic. Warforged like, are like magic robots that are sentient for listeners who don't know. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of like kind of like golems, but not quite magic robots. Um, I think of them more like droids. Yeah, they are a bit like droids. Uh, so, as you said, uh, it's set on the continent of Corvair, and it's this like post-war setting, not post-apocalyptic, but there is this like huge magical war, and there's a whole section that you also met- mentioned, part of the map called the Mornlands, that is basically like the it's like irradiated it's like a magic chernobyl where the the ambient magic left over from the war there has caused the landscape to warp and change and there are all sorts of of weird things that happen there there's a big chasm that just constantly glows and you can find all sorts of strange beasties um and so, and uh, there are a lot of really interesting sort of things about Eberron. Like there are the dragon marked houses. Also, uh, I should mention that the number 13 is like this running motif through Eberron. Uh, it's just sort of like the magic number of Eberron. So there are the, these dragon marked houses, 13 extended families, which control most of the business throughout Corvair and that are based on bloodlines descended from families that first manifested these dragon marks that are like these sort of runic birthmarks that empower them with spell-like abilities. Um, But, and they're some of the most powerful magical beings in Eberron. But besides 
the dragon-marked houses and the irradiated mornlands, uh, magic is actually kind of low-key. There's a lot of like lower-level magic, but not a lot of big, heavy-duty magic, except for the dragon-marked houses. And then there are also these things called dragon shards that are crystal fragments uh, originating from the three legendary dragons of Eberron's creation myth. So like there are these little pockets and uh, of big magic, but mostly it's all lower level, you know, cantrip style magic. Uh, it's it's a very sort of neat balancing act. And so uh, at the time in Eberron's history where I set my campaign, I had it that you know there there are those little sprinklings of magic throughout the land, but the the heads of the dragonmarked houses don't want magic rising up again to challenge their power. So there's this group called that I called the Enforcer Elite, and they're basically like the secret police of Eberron. And if you are caught ca- as a spellcaster, uh, they might imprison or even execute you. They're trying to like keep magic basically with the one percent. Um. Also, a thing that exists in certain uh, Forgotten Realm cities and whatnot. Yeah, there's there's a lot of Forgotten Realms lore that I sort of blended in here. In the um, main city in Baldur's Gate Two, you're not allowed to cast magic in the streets. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, here, if you're caught casting magic, there's going to be trouble for we you. You will cease your spell casting and come with us. Some interesting notes about Eberron just as like a setting in terms of D&D. Uh, it was first published in 2004 and it was the winning entry for a Wizards of the Coast competition. Yeah, um, I, I uh, listened to a podcast with the guy who won. It's, oh, cool. Uh, Keith well. Baker. I should listen to that because um, I was reading up on Keith Baker to refresh my memory about him. And he's done some pretty interesting things. Uh, he's worked, he before he uh, came up with Eberron and then won the contest and started, I think he's been just exclusively working on Eberron content ever since. It's even been ported over to like 4th edition and 5th edition D&D. But before that, he was working for Atlas Games. And they've done a bunch of stuff that I have never played, and most of which I hadn't heard of, but the thing that stuck out for me, especially right now, is uh, he did he wrote a bunch of adventure modules for Cyberpunk 2020, the RPG Cyberpunk 2020. Um, so he, uh, in 2002, Wizards of the Coast did this competition to establish a new D&D setting, and Eberron was the winning entry. Apparently there were 11,000 entries, and uh, he won. And so it's it's this really rich setting. There's so much lore uh, and so much stuff that you can read up about. I love the map of Eberron. It is just, like, huge and sweeping. And that was one of the things that inspired I, there me. There was 11,000 entries, but I bet there was no magical empire of the chicken plate. <laughs> I hit you with that one before? No, you didn't. Oh, man. But one time just based I was... on the title, I would have given that the win. One time I was high, and I uh, got out this leftover chicken breast from the fridge, and I uh, heated it up in the microwave, and I put it on the plate, and then I just, like, 
went crazy cutting it. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah until it was just like tiny little shreds of white chicken meat. And it lo- was just this mess, this pile of like shredded meat. And I was like, you could draw this as a map and it'd be the em- magical empire of the chicken plate. And it's a world that like periodically the gods reach down and take out big chunks of it because they're hungry. I like that. I I like how your your settings, be it this one or even uh, like the octopus, uh, there's always this element of like a huge animal, and the gods are like looking down on it. it I, I'm waiting for a moment where the octopus gets like made into sushi or something by by an elder god. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, like I do have that trend, like. Even in our little one-off that I ran, uh, Crimes Against the Faith, I like created that setting as being like, you know, an, a whole bunch of islands, and it's ruled by the gods and whatnot. Like, I don't know. I guess, I guess the recurring element is that I always have like a very strong relationship between the settings and the gods. Maybe I, that's the maybe that's the habit that I gotta break. I gotta do a godless heathen setting. Maybe that's what I'll do for Watership Down. Well, there there's not a lot of uh, there aren't a lot of like there's not a lot of religion or deities in Eberron. Um, the pantheon of Eberron doesn't really make itself overtly known. The existence of magic is not evidence of the gods. Uh, I only know cl- one of the gods really is the sovereign of uh, Oladra, the sovereign of fate or whatever, um, and good fortune and feast or something, because. Uh, I had her as one of the judges at the uh, interplanar adamantine chef competition. Ah. <laughs> um, the gods really don't factor into uh, into this campaign at all. Um, and you mentioned the Warforged. Uh, Eberron introduced a bunch of stuff that has stuck around in other forms in D&D. Uh, I think the Warforged is probably the the biggest one of those. Um, but there were also, uh, what are they called? The Shifters and the Kalashtar and Changelings were all sort of introduced as races uh, in Eberron uh, and based on pre-existing deity monsters like Doppelgangers and Lycanthropes. Um and uh, I thought it was it, this was fun as well. This I didn't know at the time, but uh, reading up on Eberron, Keith Baker listed the following movies as inspirations for its tone and attitude. Uh, and there's some fun ones. Uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf, Casablanca, From Hell, hey. The Maltese Falcon, The Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Sleepy Hollow. And Some of those really remind you how recent Eberron is, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, mm. well, the Pirates the the first Pirates of the Caribbean came out in 2003, and this was published in 2004. Recent. It's like 16 years old. My God. From Hell is also... Uh, yeah. Doesn't feel that long ago. It's all... <laughs> It's pretty long now that I think no, about I, it. I know, but like, it's just uh, you know, it's 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 no Casablanca, it's no Maltese Vulcan, and, like and it's certainly putting not it next to those classics Tolkien. of genre. Yeah, it's certainly not Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And Baker also said that inspiration for the setting came from the unstable period of world history between World War One and World War Two, uh, where there's all this political instability and, uh, you know, it's like on the cusp of yet another war. Um, I mentioned before that uh, metal is going to factor into this a bit. Uh, it will, but uh, not as much as I'd hope, because as I've mentioned previously as well, this campaign didn't make it all the way to the very end. Uh, some life got in the way with people just getting busy and we weren't able to finish the full campaign I had planned. Um, but I me. wanted... Sorry? Not me. All these is going to go so freaking long. <laughs> Uh, but one of the reasons, one of the things that inspired me to include some heavy metal influence this time around, not only are the main characters in a band, but if you look at the map of Eberron, it is full of great heavy metal sounding names. Because this is a post-war setting, it, the map is covered in forts and keeps and towers uh, left over from wartime, and they all have great names like the Lurching Tower, uh, Fort Zombie, um, the Dragon's Crown, the Baron's Keep, and I'm then dying just, to know what this band's name is going to be. They don't have it in their first adventure. They hadn't hadn't yet decided on the name of the band, so th stay tuned. Uh, but some other place names, like everywhere I look on this map, there's great inspiration for like heavy metal stuff broken tooth there's a place that's just called nowhere there's a, a whole region called the demon wastes home of the lake of fire the rotting blade and the burning keep uh there's a a, a fort called that's just called desolate um something funny i noticed uh because i hadn't played this back to back with the uh the verdant apocalypse campaign i didn't put this together until i was going over my notes but there's totally a place called passage in this as well so Neat. <laughs> there's a there's a little connection there um it's this great just like metal setting it's full of dragons and and you know dark magic and things like that the needle swamp the ice needle forest uh the nightwood the shadow mount forest i love all this stuff um, and so as far as my players go, this was a, a pretty large play group. Uh, I had five players total and off the air, you and Man, I have I've talked gone about from how four that's... down to three and yeah, you got a big one. <laughs> I, I picked up your leftovers, um, off the air. You and I have talked about how like five, that's way too many for you, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's when it's officially too many for me. Um, because four players is like just bearable for me. <laughs> <laughs> Five is my limit personally. Um, and so the players this time around, they're all, uh, they're all players who have been in other campaigns. Um, my wife, Caitlin, uh, plays a character named Alan Dare, who is a straight up bard. Uh, she didn't multi-class into anything else. She just kept him as a bard. And the main inspiration for Alan Dare is the late, great Alan Rickman. Uh, very, like, 
lots of withering looks, sarcasm, just perpetually unimpressed with everything, and she even did a sort of Alan Rickman voice. I don't know why. Oh, uh, man. The, there's sort of like maybe a weird reasoning for this, but I just remember back in the day I had a friend and me and him imagined this idea of what if Alan Rickman played the role of Ripley in Aliens. We used to go, <laughs> get away from her, you bitch. Get <laughs> away from her, you bitch. You Do not bitch. open the airlock. I believe I like I, I like to think that when he'd say bitch, he would add sort of like a an extraneous mm before it, like you bitch. Well, what I always think of is his role in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he's got a, a line and there he goes, that's my wife, you crones. Get mm. away from her, you bitch. Um, so Caitlin was playing Alan Dare, <laughs> Alan Rickman. Anyways, uh, I just threw in that weird in-joke that I had with a friend in there because I'm sure I'm going to want to say it at some point. Well, now it's an in-joke between all of our listeners. Uh, Gavin, uh, my friend Gavin, returned to play a bard slash paladin named Gabriel. Um, Mike, who played uh, Dietrich Abendroth in Minds of Metal and Wheels, was playing a druid named Marcus. Uh, Do we have? Sorry, the last one was a paladin, right? Yes. Did they have a particular face or something? You know, I, I'll have to dig up the character sheet, but I be, I don't believe that he, uh, at the time, I don't think he had settled on what deity. It didn't factor into the the start of the campaign anyway. Um, Marcus, the druid, played by Mike. Uh, Steve, who has definitely been in... He played Doc in the last one, in the Verdant Apocalypse one. He was playing uh, this special class that he had found called a masker uh, named Nikdo, where he derived... He was like a low-level magic user who derived his power through these magic masks that he'd put on. And uh, they were sort of like these magic objects, and each one allowed him to do a different thing. And then Chris, who played Thomas Morwood in Minds of Metal and Wheels 2 played a wizard named Jalen. And I, I guess should note... I guess it's 3.5, so there's a million little homebrew classes all over the internet. Yes, so many. So many of them. Um, so uh, I should also note that they didn't have a, a name for their band yet, but they all had an instrument. This was something that I insisted that they do, is, is choose the, the role that they played in the band. Uh, so Alan Dare was lead singer. Uh, Gabriel played uh, a stringed instrument that was basically a lute. Marcus the Druid played drums. Jalen, uh, the wizard, had his focus on illusions, and he played a kind of a clarinet, and basically his inspiration was the holophoner from Futurama. So he wanted to, to play okay. this... This this musical instrument that could sort of conjure up little like uh, illusory things like light, basically do their light show while they played. And then uh, Steve being the the mask wearing user, he was almost like the warm up act. Are you familiar with uh, this Chinese uh, 
like dramatic art called Bian Lian. Are you familiar with this? No, I don't think so. It's this, it, it's part of the Sichuan opera, and you may have seen clips of this, but the, the whole idea is that the performers wear these masks and they can change them really quickly, uh, almost like hexadecimal from reboot like they'll yeah, wave a fan in front of their this. face and change the mask or like look away and the mask changes or you know a flourish of their cape and when the cape falls down they've got a new mask and they do it so quickly that it's really striking you can look up uh, clips of this on youtube and yeah. so he he does this like mask show uh either while they're while the band is playing or uh as a warm-up act and uh and so that's our cast and I had, oh, and there is a, a party NPC who is their manager. Uh, his, he's a halfling named Mervyn Eugene Scrub. And Mervyn Scrub, uh, the halfling, is actually based on one of my oldest D&D characters who I had been playing since like grade seven. Uh, he was, it, when I played him, he was a, a halfling rogue who made it to a very high level over the course of a campaign that my old friend James ran all through like high school. But uh, in this case, I just sort of recycled his characteristics because I knew the character so well. And uh, he is the party NPC who is the band manager and therefore sort of like the quest giver. And... Uh, and here's the, the background on the party, because where the story starts, they've already formed a band together. But I wanted to give some background on each character and how they all kind of fell in together as a band. So Give me with it. So Alan Dare uh, had been friends with Mervyn Eugene Scrub originally, and they've been working together where <clears throat> Mervyn books gigs for Alan Dare, but Alan Dare had been caught cavorting with uh, like a princess in some royal court, the royal court of the house. Can, can you give me an idea of what this uh, Scrubs guy is like? So he's a he's a stout little halfling. He dresses in like really shabby clothing. He's got a pot belly and thinning hair, and he's like. Uh, he's almost like uh, I, I always imagined him as like the halfling version of the actor Joe Polito. Um, I'm trying to think what you'd know Joe Polito from. You know the Crow. You know the movie The Crow. I mean, yeah, I know the Crow. You know the pawn shop owner. That pawn shop. He talks kind of like that, right? Okay, good. Because look, I was I was really um, the podcast. My brother, my brother, and me has recently introduced a recurring character named. Uh, Reggie Big Shot. He's basically uh he's the money. He comes in and makes sure these boys are, are get are hitting the numbers and everything. And I was really hoping that uh the manager was gonna be, you know, like that. You yeah, know, one he's of these exactly guys. like that. It, always eating. Uh there are a lot of Damn times. it, we can't have you cavorting down in the streets, eh, man, it's not good for your image. <laughs> there are a lot of times throughout this campaign that you will see where like the players will get done on an adventure and then they'll go back to the inn where they're supposed to meet Mervin and he'll already be there eating and be like, oh, no, come on over here. Come on, have a seat, guys, you know, and, and lay out the next leg of their, their journey. And so uh, Mervin would book gigs for Alan Dare 
And then Alan Dare got in over his head where he was fooling around with a princess of the house Firelin. Um, and he he got just kicked out. Uh, and so he and Mervyn, uh, the two of them just sort of struck out on their own and have been making steady pay, but like far less than Alan Dare is used to. He's sort of like, you know, he used to work for a royal court and now he's fallen on hard times. Um Gabriel and Jalen, the the paladin and the wizard, have had been adventuring together for about a year and a half prior. They met on a ship. They're both elves as well. I should note they're both playing elves. Uh, Alan is a human, um, and uh, there's an an elvish continent in Eberron called called Arenal, and that's sort of like the the cradle of the elf civilization. And so the two of them met on a ship crossing between Arenal to Corvair, the main continent. And they spent two months on the journey together. Uh, they both missed out on Sharn, the city of towers, because they discovered it was cheaper to sail past uh, this, por- this part of the, uh, the island. So they just were just like on a really long ship voyage together where they became friends. And then in a tavern, they met Alan and Mervyn performing. After the performance, they all bonded over drinks, and it was revealed that everyone had a talent for music, so they decided to form a band as a means of paying for their travels, and also because traveling Sorry, so alone, the two elves were Marcus and... The two elves are Gabriel and Jalen. Oh, shoot. Okay, sorry. I got mixed up. Okay. Yeah, Gabriel no and Jalen. Jalen being the illusionist, Gabriel being the paladin. Correct. Um, and they decided to stick together because it's you know, you know i just assumed the druid was going to be one of the elves <laughs> no the Racist. the druid the druid uh he was a kalishtar he was one of the sort of oh. lycanthropic uh races of eberron or the kalashtar are the psychic ones aren't they oh sorry you're right the kalashtar are the the psychic ones the shifter he's a shifter shifters yeah yeah okay cool um Man, there would have been some Eberron fan. I was like, glad I caught that one. Yep. Thanks for keeping me in line. <laughs> He's such an expert on it. Um, so they all decided to travel together. There's safety in numbers. And because spellcasters are you know, supposed to lay low, uh, that also helps keep them safe. Uh, just the four of them traveling together as cover. Under, uh, we're a band, of course. So the four of them travel up through the Braylon Prairies to this big city of Greywall, and then through that to the forests of the Eldine Reaches, which are this like independent nation and therefore less thoroughly patrolled by the enforcers, safer for magic users. Uh, Nikdo, the masker, whose race nobody knows because he's always wearing masks, uh, met up with the group when they stopped he's in the a city. virus from the internet. Yeah, he, he could very well be uh, hexadecimal. Um, he met up with them in the city of Greywall, where they were performing, uh, or he was performing with a traveling troupe of entertainers at a festival when Alan, Mervyn, Gabriel, and Jalen arrived. And they all made friends. He, he learned that they were moving on in the same direction he wanted to be headed and agreed to join the band, operating as a warm-up act. And then uh, Marcus, the shifter, is the the druid, is the most recent addition to the band. 
there had been some acolytes of the Silver Flame patrolling around the towering woods where he lived, looking for evil magical beasts to slay. And because he's a shifter, he was worried that he fit the bill. So much as it pained him, he thought he should probably move on to a place that's a bit less hostile. And he met up with the ragtag band at an inn, uh, one of the go-to inn names that I use, which is the Outside Inn. Um, he met up with them after a few drinks. They were all close chums playing music. What the heck's that got a picture together. of? Sorry? A tree and a sun. What the heck's that inn got a picture of? A tree and a sun and some water, I guess. <laughs> the Outside Inn. Uh, my, my detail for that is there's the Outside Inn, and then there's an outhouse next to it called the Inside Out. Ah, because it's nice. next to the inn. And uh, so soon they they all became close friends and the band was formed and uh, they tried to forget the turmoil of the world of Eberron. And uh, just because we're, we're already starting to run a little long, I'm going to give you just the very beginning of where things start. And I, I, I had this, this blurb written out for the players, so I'll, I'll read it for you, and then that will conclude my portion. The storyteller leans in close to the fireplace, casting eerie shadows on his face. He's this ugly man with greasy hair, gray robes, and a pimple on his nose. And you might, Tom, you might recognize some of the, the names in this. He says, with a mighty yell, Bradbert Niss, that most legendary of rangers, raises his broadsword high and cries, I cast thee down. And just like that, the storyteller mimics the swipe of, his, of a blade with his arm. He chopped off the head of Dantian Dylanderar, the last bearer of a dragon mark not in the employ of the houses, the wearer of an aberrant mark. The storyteller pauses for dramatic effect. And that really was the last of the aberrant marks. They were extinct. But what no one anticipated was ten years later, later ten years... To this day, the cypherous moon would look upon the rebirth of the lineage of the aberrant mark in the center of the towering woods, for it was on this day that Lazarus Vesper was born. Do you recognize the name Lazarus Vesper? Uh, I always I like this name. So. It's from Rifts. It's from Rifts Wormwood. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Out of the union of a dragon and an elf came Lazarus into the world, wearing a mark not bestowed upon him by a royal bloodline, an aberration and a powerful one, destined to see the fall of the dragon-marked houses and the restoration of freedom from the oppression in the land of Eberron. The audience waits for more. A gnome in the audience says, So what happened to him? No one knows for sure, says the storyteller. And while the Enforcer elite may claim they killed him long ago, there are those who believe that he still walks among us. Why, he could be here right now. He pauses awkwardly. That's it. There's a smattering of applause. The gnome says to his friend, Yeah, it's always on this night, no matter what night it is. Uh, I should also note that uh, in my notes for this adventure... There are a lot of spots where I wanted to keep the players on their toes. So at the very beginning, before I even started the adventure, I had each of them roll five spot and five listen checks. And I wrote down their results on a piece of paper so that 
they wouldn't know. You know, there's always that awkward moment where you call for like a spot check. And if they fail, you're like, oh, you don't see anything. But they know something's up. So I had them pre-roll some spot and listen checks for whenever I might need them. And likewise, I wanted to keep them on their toes. So after uh, that's the storyteller finishes his story, I faked doing a uh, perform check just to be like, oh, let's see if he did good or not. But he was always going to fail. Always wanted to, to make it seem like there was a, a lot of randomness, even if there wasn't. And then uh, here's the, the last little bit that I'll read. So to the north in Corvair, in the Eldine Reaches, you can see all this if you look up a map, uh, there is a small town called Varna, a quaint little spot populated by local farmers and their families, merchants and small business owners who make a living selling goods to travelers crossing the border between the Reaches and the neighboring nation of Ondare, or heading north to the Eldine Bay. The Wynarn River slices down through the landscape from the bay, making the border between the reaches in Ondare, and at Varna, there's a small bridge that crosses the gap. Right next to that bridge, reach side, is the Cat and Custard Pot, which is an upscale inn for the region, made of blue pine logs and decorated with antlers and carvings of Olean the Druid Tree. The Cat and Custard Pot pub is a real pub. Um, this is another case where I wanted to mix in as as many sort of visual aids and details to make it really feel like a, a living place. The Cat and Custard Pot Inn is uh, in the UK. It's a, a place in Tetbury in the UK. You can look it up. Uh, just for fun, I googled it to see if it's still operational. It is indeed. <laughs> you ever been? I've never actually been there, no. Unfortunately, but I loved the sign, which is a black cat with its head stuck in a pot of custard. Nice. Um, the massive trees of the towering wood loom in over the scattered buildings of Varna, and even though they're at least a kilometer away from the river, their strange and magical nature pervades the surroundings. It's a deep, dark night outside, silent, still, and watching. You've been staying at the Cat and Custard Pot for a week now, gaining free lodging and meals in exchange for your performing services. You've been making decent money. There are always lots of travelers coming through. Until recently. For the past few weeks, there have been very few travelers indeed. And that is where the story begins. Gotta get that tourism up again. Yeah, it's true. Gotta get that tourism up again. There's a, it was really fun rereading all my notes for this because there are a lot of little things that I, I throw in. Um, like I'll, I'll talk about it a bit more on our next episode uh, when we really get into this campaign. But uh, the patrons, before the band goes up to play their, their nightly gig, the patrons of the pub say, hey, set up the, t the tables for Troll Bridge. Let's all play Troll Bridge. Get a game going. And Troll Bridge was... Uh, a like a mini game that I had found rules for where the uh, the players or it's just played in like D&D taverns. Uh, the patrons set up all the tables in like one long row and then it's like wrestling on top of the tables. One player is the troll and then the other player has to try and get past the troll and the objective. It's almost like uh, like fighting on a log, right? Trying to push yeah. the other person off. And so I had like all these rules for this mini game if uh, if the players wound up wanting to play Troll Bridge. And lots Those of little tables are well built. Yeah. 
well, all my all my D&D ends are always uh, really sturdy because fights break out in them constantly. So everything's reinforced. But yeah, that's the start of Eberron, the world of Eberron. Well, it seems like we both uh, pretty much maxed out our time as far as talking about our stories go. I think so. And there's there's plenty more to come. Exactly. I've got five, four or more mini adventures in this first operation alone. Um, do we want to hit up the gotten tavern? into the first one? Yeah, exactly. Do we want to hit up the tavern? Uh, sure. Yeah, we might as well. Tavern time, tavern time. Um, I just brought something that is related to my sort of introduction to my intro for tavern time, just because I thought it would be good to go over and sort of introduce is we've talked in the past when talking about how I designed my modules about the formatting of the Adventures League adventures. But um, one thing that I do not use uh, because it's sort of unique to the Adventures League is they have a like template adventure intro that basically is a set of rules and reminders that apply to like every adventure. So they're the same before every adventure. And I just wanted to go through these to give an idea of like the kind of content I was working with in terms of like uh, harvesting for my own content. Um, so you've got a little introduction where it says, you know, uh, what adventure it is, what season it is. Um, it says what, uh, levels it's designed for and what level like, uh, optimized for five first level characters, for example, is this one. Um, but it also says things like it can also be played by second level characters, though those characters might have a much easier time playing the adventure, um, etc. Generally, these are rules so that like because Adventures League is sort of like a like an organized play format. And so the idea is like you should be able to come to your Adventures League game each at your local store each week and like know these rules more or less like be able to sort of read them quickly and know like whether or not your character qualifies um, and like how to get started. Uh, so in going along with that, uh, as the adventure players track their characters, experience treasure and other rewards and can take those characters through other adventures that will continue their story. Uh, Adventures league play is broken up into storyline sessions um, when players create characters, they attach those characters to a storyline season. Sorry, I said session. I meant season. Uh, so the characters are attached to seasons, which determines what rules they're allowed to use to create and advance their characters. Uh, players can continue to play their characters after the storyline season has finished, possibly participating in a second or third storyline with those same characters. Characters level is the uh, characters level is the only limitation for adventure play. A uh, character cannot use a character of a higher level or lower than the level range of a D&D Adventures League adventure. Um, you get, uh, there's like a number code for each of these adventures. So like, for example, this first one was uh, DDX11 uh, one because it's uh, first, it's part of the Dungeons and Dragons Expeditions program. 
and it is the first episode of the first season. So you've got a little uh, reminder of things you'll need to be ready for the adventure. So you've got your basic rules. You should read read through the adventure, take notes of things, highlight or remind yourself uh, running your, the adventure, uh, such as the way you'd like to portray an NPC or tactic like you'd like to use in combat. Um, you're advised to get familiar with the monster statistics, uh, get together any resources you need for running the session. And if you know the composition of the group beforehand, you can make adjustments as noted throughout the adventure. Um, then before play, it is recommended that you learn all the players, uh, character name and level, character race and class, their passive wisdom, uh, their passive perception, which is the most common passive ability check. I don't honestly use passive perception a lot or or what i should say is it's there but for me passive perception is like anytime there's a perception check i have the players actively actively roll it the passive perception just means like if they roll lower than that their number is raised to that so it's like it's, their it's, so, it's sort of filling in uh what i was what I was doing in Eberron, but again, I actually had the players roll and then doled out those results where appropriate. Right. Um, so this advan uh, this recommends that you just like know the passive perception and any notable, anything notable, uh, any other notable things like basically their background, their traits and everything. Um, Again, reminding us players that have characters outside the adventure's level range cannot participate in the adventure with those characters. Um, they offer like pre-generated characters or something, but like basically they're just saying like for the rules of this, don't break the level uh, recommendations. However, I broke it all the time. I just took the adventures. And I'm like, whatever, if I need to scale something up, I'll scale it up. Uh so, um, there's a special log sheet that you get for the uh, Adventurers League where you track uh, XP, gold, downtime, renown, which is uh, tracked with your faction, which I was mentioning earlier, and uh, magic items they get. Um, uh... If players wish to spend downtime days and it's the beginning of an adventure or episode, they can declare their activity and spend the days now, or they can do so at the end of the adventure or episode. So there are various things that you can do. You basically, like, each adventure you do, you earn a certain amount of downtime um, that you can spend either at the end of the adventure or before your next adventure. And you can sort of use your downtime to uh, just to, like... Oftentimes an adventure uh, will offer like specific things you can use your downtime for. Like, hey, there's this ruin in this adventure, but players might want to come back and try like searching it and they can use their downtime for that. Alternatively, there's like general things you can use it for, like, um, you know, training a skill or things like that. And there's uh, guidelines for that as well. Um Players should select their character's spells and other daily options prior to the start of the adventure, unless the adventure specifies otherwise. Um, so then there is the system for ad adjusting the adventure. Now, this is interesting because they've gone through the whole, like, what 
level it is. But as I mentioned earlier, there are guidelines depending on the power level of the group for like how to adjust different encounters and missions. So the way this works is uh, to figure out whether you need to adjust the adventure, do the following. Add up the total levels of all the characters, divide the total by the number of characters, round fractions of uh, 0.5 or greater up, round fractions of less than 0.5 down, so, you know, rounding, uh, and that determines the average party level, and then to figure out the party strength for the adventure, you consult a table, which... This will be different on each adventure depending what the recommended level is. But in this case, it's uh, if you have three to four characters that are equivalent to the average party level expected, so first level, uh, because you have less than the expected five players, the party strength is listed at weak. Um, if it's the same number of players, like less players, but they're average level is greater than one then your party strength is average if it's five characters and it's they're all level one or their average is level one it's average if it's five characters and their level their average level is greater than one they should have a strong party adjustments and then six to seven characters with equivalent average level uh should get be treated as a strong party and six to seven characters at average player level uh, greater than one uh, is advised to be listed as a very strong party. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when I used these, I basically always looked at the very strong options. And like, I think pretty much from the beginning, I was going with those. Like um, I mentioned how in the upper part of the ship during the ambush in this first adventure, uh, there was a bandit and a thug hiding out waiting for them. That's having it be a bandit and a thug is the very strong option. If it was just regular, it would have just been two bandits. Um, if uh, it was a strong party, it would have advised I add one bandit instead of turning one into a thug. And then if it was a weak party, like... Uh, it would have advised that I remove the two bandits entirely. But, you know, I think I, I'm generally treating my my party, even though it is less than the number of expected players, I am treating them as very strong just because, like, they are very well-equipped and well-trained and whatnot. Um, like the fact that they are trained, they have proficiency in firearms and are armed with them. That alone means they're generally doing like double the damage that anybody else would be doing. Um, so then there are some golden rules for dungeon, uh, for dungeon masters. You're empowered to make uh, adjustments to the adventure and make decisions about how the group interacts with the world of this adventure. Uh, don't make the adventure too easy or too difficult. Be mindful of pacing and keep the game session moving along appropriately. Read aloud text is just a suggestion. Feel free to modify the text as you see fit, especially when dialogue is present. And give the players appropriate hints so they can make informed decisions about how to proceed. Um, right, downtime and lifestyle. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, the following options are available to players during downtime. Catching up. Uh, Crafting, uh, exception that multiple characters cannot commit to crafting a single item. 
practicing a profession, recuperating, spellcasting services, though that can only be at the end of the adventure, it can't be at the start, or training. Uh, spellcasting services is something uh, interesting that I wanted to get into, uh, particularly because I basically included this as part of being the MPOC. Uh, spellcasting services is basically there are certain cleric spells or, or like certain spells that are such a utility to parties as like, um, I, I'm just going to read this rundown. Basically any settlement, the size <laughs> of a town or larger can provide some spellcasting services. Characters need to be able to travel to the settlement to obtain these services. Alternatively, if the party finishes an adventure, they can be assumed to return to the settlement closest to the adventure location. Spell services generally available include healing and recovery spells, as well as information gathering spells. Other spell services might be available as specified in the adventure. The number of spells available to be cast as a service is limited to a maximum of three per day total, unless otherwise noted. And the spells listed here with their prices are uh, Cure Wounds at first level for 10 gold, Identify for 20 gold, Lesser Restoration for 40 gold, Prayer of Healing at second level for 40 gold, Remove Curse for 90 gold, Speak with Dead for 90 gold, Divination for 210 gold, Greater Restoration for 450 gold, or Raise Dead for 1,250 gold. So basically there's this idea that there is like an economy for certain spells that you go out and just get as like, you know, it's like going out and buying potions. It's like there's certain spells that are available as a service. And there's also a little consideration for players with the Acolyte background, which would include, for example, Ara Kendor. Um, a character possessing the Acolyte background requesting spell spellcasting services at a temple of his or her faith may request one spell per day from the spellcasting services table for free. The only cost paid for the spell is the base price for the consumed material component, if any. So that generally limits, like, you'd still have to pay for Raise Dead because I think that costs, like, a certain amount in material components. Same for things like, uh, you know, I think the same is true of Greater, greater Restoration. So, like, the higher-end options are still going to cost you money. You can't just be an acolyte to get a free resurrection or something. What if I had but, a coupon? I mean, it's kind of like that. You kind of basically have the coupon. And I like that little, like, character background uh, consideration. Finally, they have rules for uh, disease, poison, and other debilitating effects. Uh, a character still affected by the similar or similar effects at the conclusion of an adventure can spend downtime days recuperating until such time as he or she resolves the effect to its conclusion. Um, uh, and if a character doesn't resolve the effect between sessions, the character begins the next session still affected by the debilitating effect. As for death, um, there are a number of options. Uh, if no one in the adventuring party has immediate access to raise dead or revivify or similar magic, a character, uh, so, uh, uh, right. So then alternatively you have these options. Um, oh, sorry. Also, it should be mentioned, and this is actually something about the raise dead spell, but a character subject to raise dead spell is affected negatively until all long rests have been completed during an adventure, um, so they have a penalty to attack rolls, uh, 
Oh, sorry. Alternatively, each downtime day spent after Ray's dead reduces the penalty to attack rolls, saving throws, and ability checks by one, in addition to any other benefits the downtime activity might provide. So if you look at Ray's dead, there is a specific, like, debilitating effect that lasts for a number of long rests, uh, uh, like, lasts for an amount of time after you've been risen. So that's basically covering, like, how you deal with that. Finally, uh... The alternative options for dead characters are you can create a first new first level character. Uh, your dead character could pay for raise dead. Um, if the character's body is recoverable and the player would like the character to be returned to life, the party can take the body back to civilization and use the dead character's funds to pay for a raise dead spell. Um, alternatively, if they want, the character's party can pay for the raise dead. Um, or faction charity. I mentioned the factions earlier. If the character is of level one to four and a member of a faction, the dead character's body can be returned to civilization and a patron from the faction ensures that he or she receives a raised dead spell. However, any character invoking this charity forfeits all XP and rewards from that session, even those earned prior to death during that session, and cannot replay that episode or adventure with that character again. Once a character reaches fifth level, this option is no longer available. So there is leeway for low-level characters to just be, like, given a free revive, but, you know, there's downsides, and once you're high enough level, they just don't do that. And then um, each adventure starts with an adventure background, which just is sort of an overview of what has led up to the events of the adventure. In this case... Uh, Flan is a city in transition. Many groups compete for power, sometimes working together, but often at odds as schemes progress and alliances form and unravel. Thrown into this volatile mix is the cult of the dragon, a cabal of dragon-obsessed zealots whose plans go much deeper than the power struggles of mortals. While each mini-adventure takes place against the backdrop of the struggles of Flan, none focus too closely on any of Flan's plots or sites. Each gives just a small taste of the deeper troubles in Flan, instead focusing on giving the players a fun, quick mission that can be completed in less than an hour. Because this is the intro to the season. And I should say, each season does tend to have one of these sets of five mini-adventures, rather than like a specific one big uh intro adventure the overview basically tells you like um it gives you a sense of like what each part of the adventure is like and how long you should expect each one to take uh although this one is a bit of an exception unlike most other DD ad expeditions adventures Defiance in Flan is broken into five mini-adventures, each of which is designed for one hour of play. If running this adventure as part of an event that cycles players through quickly, the DM should be familiar with the mini-adventures that he or she is going to run. At public events, time is often the most important factor. Get the players into the mini-adventure as quickly as possible, keep an eye on the clock, and take whatever shortcuts are necessary to stay on schedule. If time is not an issue, let the players spend more time interacting with the NPCs within the mini-adventures. Each mini-adventure takes place at a different time of day, and the names correspond to that time. In a large public event, this should assist players in remembering which mini-adventures they have completed. And then, uh, finally, they have a list of adventure hooks. And this one is 
One consistent element in each of the mini adventures is the starting and ending location. Madame Free, Madame Friona's tea kettle, which in my game is the oh, barking yeah. dog inn. And uh, you use this location to orient the characters as some may play the mini adventures in order from beginning to end. Others might just play one or two random mini adventures and others still may play them in no particular order. Uh, Madame Friona's tea kettle and Friona herself is a mystery to many. In the tumultuous flan, this is a place where people can go to have a drink or meal and escape the tensions of the schemers and the power hungry. With the tea kettle's reputation as a haven, adventurers who can be discreet and behave themselves can often find employment there. Since time is usually of the utmost importance during this event, the hook for each mission is generally the same. The characters were told Madame Friona's tea kettle is a great place to find work, so there they are. As the as is appropriate for a time-sensitive event, the adventurer will find the characters quickly and without much fuss. Um, so there's obviously in this one there's particularly an emphasis on like playing this at event at an event. I think that's also particularly because this was the first episode of the first season for the first flagship adventure for fifth edition. So it probably was run at a lot of like conventions to promote the launch of fifth edition and the first adventure. Um, but yeah, this is basically an idea of like, particularly I wanted to cover like how it handles player death spell casting services things like that i think all of that is pretty interesting and it sort of informs like how i'm approaching these adventures and doing my own spin on them because of course i'm just running it all as one campaign so there's a lot that like i'm adjusting or just bypassing entirely some neat resources there i'll have to look into them uh further more in depth And do you have some for the tavern? I do. We're going pretty long, so I'm just going to do one entry on this. But I wanted, makes sense. I wanted to talk a bit about this list on D and D, or it's D and D wiki.com, which is a list of uh, diseases from D and D 3.5 edition. And there are some magical ones in here, such as the orc flu or the death fever. But uh, the ones I found interesting is somebody took the time to write up stats for a lot of real-world diseases and afflictions, like botulism, chickenpox, cholera, the common cold. Um, tetanus. Uh, is tetanus on? Tetanus is on here. Um, tetanus, you got to roll a fortitude save, DC 16. It has a one-week incubation period. You develop paralysis of the mouth and possible ability damage or death at two weeks if you keep failing your saves. Uh, typhoid fever, syphilis, um, smallpox. But mixed in here is the one I'm going to talk about. It's pregnancy. <laughs> oh... Yeah, this is, this is this is like in Shadowrun in one of the new editions of Shadowrun. One of the debilitating effects was pregnancy. I don't know about that wording, guys. Yeah. Um. So here's the entry on it, and it's not. It's not. It is like pregnancy hey, at least I know what the incubation period is. Well, no, see, you don't, because this is not actual pregnancy i would i saw it on the list and i was like 
the fuck are they talking about? Pregnancy, the disease? No, it is a magical disease called pregnancy with an infection DC of 25, an incubation period of 10 to 17 days. And listen to this. Or the, I, guess it, I guess it does have the, it has an incubation period of 10 to 17 days, but it does run its course in nine months. Pregnancy is a disease as much as a complication. It occurs one of three ways. The obvious, a divine blessing, or certain situations that cause the bearer to come in contact with the pregnancy-causing cells. Uh, pregnancy or pregnant female will most definitely cause will most definitely cause another female to become pregnant from contact. So it's contagious pregnancy. It runs its course in nine months. After it runs its course, a baby of wonder appears. <laughs> It manifests. This is like that weird. This is like that TNG episode. Yeah, it's like the TNG episode. Pregnancy manifests itself as a weakness or as weakness, one d two strength damage per month. Ravenous hunger. A character must eat twice as much in order to maintain nutrition. An aversion to certain foods. A character must make a DC fifteen fortitude save or disgorge anything they ate. Fatigue. Uh, bloating. Taking a minus five penalty on disguise checks. Nausea, mood swings, taking a negative two penalty on diplomacy checks, but gaining plus five on intimidate checks. Uh, Negative two penalty on attack rolls. In the later months of pregnancy, contractions also occur, causing a character to wake up exhausted and take a minus two penalty on attack rolls from discomfort. Finally, at the end of pregnancy's course, a character needs to find a place to rest constantly as the baby will be on its way. During birth, the character must succeed a DC 15 fortitude save every round or take 1d2 points of damage. If the damage reduces her to negative hit points, she dies and the baby must make a DC 5 fortitude save or also die. If the character survives birth... She must make a DC 15 fortitude save or fall unconscious for 1d4 hours. Otherwise, she acts as if under a suggestion spell when she looks upon her child. The fuck is this, right? <laughs> yeah, wait, I, this is taking wacky turns, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, like that, it's like that episode Next Generation. It really is. It, it's just... It's absolutely ridiculous. I, I I was shocked to see it included on this list of diseases. Uh, and I, I need to do... Clearly, I need to do more research to find out what the hell a baby of wonder is. Yeah, goddamn. I was... I, I, I can't believe you're going to leave me hanging on this. All right, all right. I'm going to look it up right now real quick. What is a baby of wonder? Oh, here we go. It, it's... <laughs> And in keeping with this tone-deaf, stupid uh, write-up on D&D Wiki, Baby of Wonder is listed as equipment. Uh, They are well-known and loved by many people. It's a wondrous item. They are less well-known and less well-loved by adventurers. In fact, they are well-feared comedic devices inflicted upon unsuspecting adventurers by tyrannical DMs. Many consider them cursed items. Any adventuring party possessing a baby of wonder does not sleep well. The baby's cries keep everyone up at night. The party begins every day fatigued. Arcane casters do not rest well enough to regain spells. In addition to giving a party sleepless nights, the baby produces random effects each round during combat. (laughs) You roll a d10... And here are the different things that the Baby of Wonder might ha- might manifest. 
I think all this stuff that it's saying about a t- like this is the device of a tyrannical DM, the pregnancy affliction is just an offshoot of that. Yeah, I think probably. It's just the vector for this tyrannical DM. So on a D10, uh, roll a one, nothing. Two, stinking cloud. Three, sound burst. Four, touch of idiocy. Five, glossolalia. Six, confusion. Seven, hypnotic pattern. Eight, daze monster. Nine, enthrall. Or on a 10, you roll twice on the table. All results affect random targets or directions. Area of effects are always centered on the baby of wonder. All effects are considered to have a caster level of six, and the effects have a DC uh, spell save DC of the spell level plus 14. These effects are not considered magical. The party can rest for eight hours by the use of a lullaby cantrip, which places the baby into deep slumber. The baby can therefore be disabled for one minute per level by the use of the calm emotion spell. Good lord. The fact that it's effect, the fact that those effects are treated as non-magical is so insane. So you can't even dispel the enthrallment that the Wonder Baby had on one of your party members. This is just one of those dang old DM pranks. <laughs> yep, it pretty much is. And you know what? Uh, I can see at the very bottom of the page it says, This content is not designed for use in regular games and may affect overall balance and gameplay. Take caution when using this material. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's funny in that way. Our car- our uh, tavern picks were kind of the opposite. I had the most official balanced thing ever. Then you had the most least official, bal- most unbalanced thing ever. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so. Uh, anything else? I think that's our episode, eh? I think so. A big, a big one, a big new one. New if you campaigns, want to get in touch with beginnings. us, if you want to get in touch with me, you can uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm Narnog at Narnog N A R underscore N O G. Uh, you can hit us up on Facebook. Please follow us and like us on Facebook. We're comparing campaign on Facebook. That's where I put updates uh, when the episodes go up. And then um, you can follow us on Spotify. You can follow us where you get your podcasts. And finally, most importantly, uh, for any references we make during the game or, or our po- during the podcast, uh, any show notes and my map of Drail on that uh, earliest post, um, you can find that on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and hopefully you stay tuned for the rest of these wacky new campaigns. Level up your character. Not me!